If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Welcome. You're listening to Casually Baked, the podcast. Home base for the can of curious. Thanks for tuning in. It's hot time. We had a hot time. Together. Together. Yes, it's a hot time. We had a hot time. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe your host and Cannabis Lifestyle Guide. I am so delighted to share today's conversation with you. Last year, during my podcast with Daniel Fink of Down Elm Farms, he introduced me to the book and teachings of today's guest. Gabe Brown is one of the pioneers of the current soil health movement, which focuses on the regeneration of our resources. Gabe, along with his wife Shelly and son Paul, own and operate Brown's Ranch, a diversified 5,000-acre farm and ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota. Their ranch consists of several thousand acres of native perennial rangeland, along with perennial pasture land and cropland. They focus on farming and ranching in nature's image. Over 2,000 people visit the Brown's Ranch annually to see their unique operation. They've welcomed visitors from all 50 states and 24 countries. Gabe and Brown's Ranch have received many forms of recognition for their work, including a Growing Green Award from the Natural Resource Defense Council, an Environmental Stewardship Award from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and a Zero-Till Producer of the Year Award, just to name a few. Gabe has also been named one of the 25 most influential agricultural leaders in the United States. And he authored the book that inspired me, Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture. I first reached out to Gabe in early October of last year after reading Dirt to Soil. I invited him to join me on the podcast to offer us insights into reshaping the future of agriculture in our own communities. During our discussion, we talk about shifting into a mindset of stewardship and getting buy-in from family and community along the way. We discuss the financial opportunities of regenerative ag and the cost savings of working with nature. Gabe explains the flaws of conventional soil tests and offers alternative solutions, real-world examples, educational resources, and insights into some of the projects he's rolling out with his consultancy, Understanding Ag. We also talk about my own family's journey. 
Now, let me tell you, you do not need to be a farmer or rancher to appreciate today's chat. Every living, breathing being on this planet is affected by the health of our soil. And your power as a consumer shopping for food is the ultimate key to reshaping the health of our world. From clean water to nutrient-dense food to terpene-rich cannabis and happy, healthy humans, regenerative agriculture is the key to healing our planet. So smoke them if you got them and settle in. It's time to get casually baked. Today, I am so honored to have Gabe Brown with us to talk about the importance of regenerative agriculture and how we can create a real movement in this country around taking care of what I believe is the most endangered species on our planet, which is topsoil. Gabe, what do you think? Well, thank you. It's a pleasure <laughs> to be with you today. And I would certainly agree with that. I would say that our soil is one of the most misunderstood things that we have in life. You know, we, mo we know more about putting a man on the moon than we do about taking care of our soil. This is a true story. And when you talk about it, people, I mean, I get laughed at when I bring this up. People just don't understand the importance of, of topsoil and the importance of taking dirt and turning it into soil. You know, on my family's ranch in West Texas, we have 18,000 acres of dirt. And, you know, I'm a fifth generation soon to be farmer rancher. And I get laughed at because, you know, I left home at 18 years old and I haven't been back. I haven't been a part of our family's operation. But over the eight years that I've lived out in California and working in the cannabis space, I am meeting people who are excellent stewards of our planet and they are taking such good care to make sure that they are growing not only cannabis, but also fruits and vegetables and everything else for their community in a way that honors nature and, you know, Mother Earth. And what I find interesting is the psychology of trying to get someone who's done something the same way for so long to make the decision to do things totally different. Like, yeah. it, it's a scary thing for people. It, it is. It is. And I think there, there are several points to what you just mentioned right there. The first is we have to get people aware of the fact, and it is a fact, that our ecosystems are severely degraded. You know, I'm a farmer rancher myself that's spent all my adult life farming and ranching. And I've had the good fortune the past 20 years in that I travel extensively all over the world. And I've been on literally thousands of farms and ranches all over the world. And I can honestly say that I have never, ever, not once been on a single one, including my own, that's not degraded. We are all farming and ranching degraded resources. And I would say this, think of your family's ranch there in, in West Texas. Now, I haven't been on it, but... I spent a great deal of time. We have a number of clients in West Texas. So I'm there multiple times per year. I'm very familiar with the area. West Texas is like anywhere else is degraded. And the thing people don't realize doesn't matter where they farm or ranch, their farm or ranch is degraded. And we know this for a fact. I can walk on any farm or ranch and we can do simple soil tests that show the amount of carbon or in other words, the percent organic matter in the soil. And I will guarantee you the vast majority of them are maybe 25% of what they once were, which means all that carbon and, and realize that soil life requires carbon in order to live that was once in the soil is now up in the atmosphere. So that's the first thing. People need to understand there's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's everywhere. Our resources degraded. Okay. 
So why not regenerate it? Well, a lot of times they, they just don't understand and don't know. We have a saying at, at our, our consulting firm, Understanding Ag, that you, you don't know what you don't know. I didn't suddenly wake up one day and realize that there's six principles of soil health that drive four ecosystem processes. I wasn't taught that in all the years I, I went to high school and college. No, they weren't teaching principles and processes. You look today, the extension service isn't teaching it. Certainly not agronomists, certainly not uh, our land-grant universities, certainly not the fertilizer industry, the chemical industry. They're not teaching it. So farmers kind of have a fear of this unknown, farmers and ranchers. They, you don't know what you don't know, so you're afraid to take that step. So that's why it's such a big part of what I do now is coming on podcasts like yours and trying to educate anyone who will listen. And fortunately, as you said earlier, Joe, there are people out there that are listening and they're starting to make this change. And the industry is starting to listen to and consumers are becoming more aware. And that's what it's going to take to really make change. Uh, there where your family's ranch is in West Texas, I would say, historically speaking, uh, you should be able to walk into those pastures and Grasses should be from two to six feet tall in those pastures. Well, I've spent a lot of time in West Texas, and uh, it's it's few and far between the number of pastures that grow that type of biomass there today. The other thing, too, is when you don't know what you don't know, and you're already scraping by, mm-hmm. and you know most of them are surviving off of government insurance payouts and whatnot, that it's like they're afraid to stop suckling that government teat, so to speak, and try something new because they're like, well, what's this going to cost me? And if we screw it up, then mm-hmm. you're dead meat, Joanna. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you, you, just, you just struck on something there that I, I couldn't agree more with. I just uh, returned home this morning from speaking to... Uh, farm credit employees in the Pacific Northwest. As part of my presentation, I showed them that government subsidies are a higher and higher percent of net farm income on average every year. In fact, in 2020, which is the latest figures I have, uh, net farm income in some states as high as 72% of net farm income was from government subsidies. I'm sorry, those farmers and ranchers, they do not have a viable business. They're on welfare. Let's be honest about it. And I know that's going to strike a nerve with a lot of farmers and ranchers. They're going to puff their chest out and say they're extremely hardworking, and they are, but they need to face reality. They're also relying on subsidies from American taxpayers in order to prop up their farmer ranch. And that can't continue. You know, we're $30 trillion in debt in this country. It just can't continue. No. And okay, so that's a good point. So you talk about how hard they're working. So Mm -hmm. does regenerative agriculture require more of your time and energy than these like traditional big ag ways of being? Or are you actually working smarter, not harder? Okay, I will. I will use uh, my own ranch for an example, which is 6000 acres. And on this 6000 acres, we grow a wide variety of different cash crops. Plus, we run between 600 and 800 head of cattle, we cow calf, and then we grass finish all them. We got have a flock of ewes and we grass finish the lamb. Uh, we farrow hogs all outdoors and raise three to 400 pastured pork per year. We have 1,400 laying hens out on pasture. So there's a thousand eggs to pick and clean every day. And then we do broiler chickens and some turkeys and have some honey. And then we direct market all those products directly to consumers. So today the ranch is run by my 34-year-old son, our 34-year-old son, I should say, and he employs his girlfriend and one part-time hired man, and they do all that themselves. And my son says, 
one of the big expenses he has now is that during the winter, he wears out a recliner because he's inside <laughs> sitting in the recliner. The thing of it is, look at all the things we don't do. Because we have a healthy functioning soil ecosystem, we have not applied any synthetic fertility to our cropland since 2007. We have not applied any fungicide or pesticide since the 1990s, okay? We do not vaccinate our cattle. There's no need to, they don't get sick, uh, rarely anyway. Uh, we do not have to worm the cattle. We do not have put pour on them or fly tags or any of those things because we have a healthy functioning ecosystem. So because we don't have to do all those things, it allows us the time to do the things we want to do, which includes direct marketing of all these products, which allows us a greater return. So we're much, much more profitable and with less a physical labor. And all of those things that you mentioned cost a lot of money. Well, you that's know, exactly all... right. That's exactly right. So our firm, Understanding Ag, we consult and we're <laughs> consulting on just over 32 million acres now across the United States, Canada, Mexico. And uh, when we go work with a farmer or rancher, the first thing we do and the principle that I added since I wrote that book is the principle of context. You have to work within the context of your environment, your financial context, your social context, how many family members are involved in the operation and your spiritual context. So we work within those constraints. When we work with, say, for example, a, a rancher, we're not going to go on that ranch and tell them, oh, you got to change your calving date. You got to quit uh, selling your calves at weaning. Now you got to keep them and run them as yearlings. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to work within their context in a way that increases their profitability. We're extremely successful because most farmers and ranchers are over uh, applying these inputs. And so we show them how by working with nature, you can significantly cut your input costs while increasing profitability. And one of the things we don't do, we don't talk about yield or we don't talk about pounds. You know, farmers all want to talk about yield and ranchers all want to talk about how they had the heaviest calves at the market. Well, I could care less about those things. Let's talk about profit. Because I'll stay in business making a profit. I may not stay in business having the heaviest calves of anyone in the neighborhood, right? So we're going to talk about profit. We're going to put more money in their pockets. And that then gives them the encouragement to continue down the regenerative path. And the more of the principles they ad adopt to drive the processes, the more profitable they're going to become. You know, one of the things that you mentioned made me think of one of the examples in your book where someone had, you know, they were doing all the right stuff following this regenerative path. But then when they did a soil test, they ended up dropping $50,000 for like nitrogen supplementation or something. And so can you talk a little bit about these conventional soil tests sure. versus the one that you would recommend? Sure. So, the vast majority of soil tests taken today only give producers a small snapshot of what is really happening in their soils. Most soil tests today only look at the inorganic fraction of nutrients. In other words, uh, the nutrients that are water soluble the day that sample was taken. They don't look at the organic fraction, this whole large pool of nutrients. So one of the first things we do when we uh, start with a new client is we do one test that's called a total nutrient digestion test. That shows the total pool of nutrients that they have in the top foot of their soil profile. I said, mentioned earlier, we're on over 32 million acres. We have never, ever, not once sampled a single field, a single pasture, a single vineyard, orchard, anywhere that is lacking in nutrients. We've never done it. There's plenty of nutrients. Nature provided for that. 
Okay, God provided for that. So how then come can't farmers and ranchers grow decent crops? They don't understand the nutrient cycle. In a teaspoonful of healthy soil, there's more microorganisms than there are people on this planet. Okay, yet how many of us as farmers and ranchers think about feeding soil biology? Because it's the bacteria in the soil eating all those carbon compounds, and then the protozoan, nematodes, and other predators eat the bacteria. That's the start of the nutrient cycle. But nobody ever explains that. See, and the agronomists who are doing these soil tests today, of course they're going to show you just the inorganic fractions so they can sell you more fertilizer. You know, I'm uh, very outspoken when I go speak to groups of farmers and ranchers and I tell them, you need to fire your agronomist because they're not doing you a good job. They're, they're not lying to you, but they're only telling you a small facet. So we do a test called the Haney test, H-A-N-E-Y, which shows us the biological activity in the soil. And we do a PLFA test, phospholipid fatty acids, so we can see how many protozoan, nematodes, and mycorrhizal fungi, which are needed, the mycorrhizal fungi are needed to build soil aggregates so you can infiltrate water. And then uh, once we know those things, we can start producers down the path of saving more money and getting their ecosystem processes functioning profitably. Yes, it's grow your dirt before you can grow anything else. My my sister and I had watched some webinar from the uh, Soil Food Web, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Elaine, Elaine. Ingham, uh -huh. and my sister signed up for her program so that she could, you know, get her certification so that she can know what's going on when mm -hmm. we're at home trying to make this shift. Now, that said. How do you get buy-in from your community, whether we're talking about your mm -hmm. family community, which is what I'm working on right now? Mm -hmm. So I had bought your book and read it and asked my family to please buy and read your book. So Crystal and I read it. Crystal's the one that is now taking Dr. Elaine Ingham's course. And my dad, when I got home, he'd only made it through about 47 pages. And he just kept saying, well you know, we live in a drought stricken area, whatever. I'm like, you clearly haven't read the book. I know you haven't read the book if you're talking about not having enough water. What are some of the ways that we can, you know, get buy-in from people in our community so that we can collaborate yep. on this versus button heads with them? Yeah. Uh, excellent question, Joe. And I tell people the best way to change minds is through action. Do it yourself and then they can't deny it. Okay, you're in West Texas. I know the rainfall of that area. I think you would agree with me that the Chihuahuan Desert of Mexico is drier than you are in West Texas. A good friend of mine, a consultant we, who works for us is Alejandro Carrillo. He has 20,000 acre ranch in the Chihuahuan Desert. I was there again in October you drive through hundreds of miles of desert with very little grown except some uh, mesquite and an occasional grass plant here or there. It takes 300 acres to run a cow-calf pair. You get to the gate of Alejandro's ranch, you open that gate and drive in, and all of a sudden the grass is knee to waist high, and it's taken him 20 to 25 acres to run a cow-calf pair for a year. Six to eight inches of moisture. Okay, so explain that. What's the difference? Does the rain only fall on Alejandro's ranch and not on all <laughs> hundreds of miles leading up to it? No, the difference is management, or as I like to call it, stewardship. And the difference is that Alejandro is out there. They move their livestock daily. They're moving them every day. And because of that, they're healing the soil. They're stimulating the biological activity in the soil. They're growing a tremendous amount of fertility. They're regreening the desert. So one of the things that I do, uh, and I'm not afraid to do it as all, is I make this challenge to anybody out there. I will bet my ranch in North Dakota against your farm or ranch that I can heal those ecosystem processes on your farm or ranch and make that profitable. And I, I'm not at all 
embarrassed to or afraid if somebody comes up and says, okay, I'll take you up on that. I'll gladly do that, but I'll tell you, I'm going to own their farm or ranch because these are simply <laughs> the principles of nature. And if you follow those principles to drive the processes, it works. So I would love to uh, send you some pictures of Alejandro's ranch. And then uh, you need to take your father and brothers for a drive down there and show them. And we're doing that everywhere. I can take you to New Mexico, not that far from you, and take you to the CS Ranch, northern New Mexico, where we're doing the same thing. You, you'll see overgrazed pastures, and then all of a sudden, you'll be standing and need a waste-high forage. And it's all due to management. I love that. Now, when we were home and we were told things aren't going to go your way until we're dead in the ground. Mm -hmm. So the compromise was that they would give us this section at headquarters because I wanted something near headquarters where when mm -hmm. people are driving in to come visit or hunters or whatever, I want it to be somewhere where people are going to see it. Yep. So there's a space that was an old roping arena that isn't used anymore. And so they told us we could have, we could do whatever the hell we wanted to do inside that area. And so in my mind, I want to create almost a show and tell garden so that mm -hmm. people can walk through and we can point out mm -hmm. the importance of, you know, limited disturbance and creating armor and having diversity and Yep. And just showcase what we're doing. And, you know, my sister, she's focusing on the soil health. And, you know, I'm concerned about community outreach and the, you know, the profitability piece, the sales and marketing of what we're doing, but also bringing something where we can have people from our community, you know, the FFA groups. I was a future farmer of America. And, you know, just having these people be able to come out because I don't, know what kids at school are learning anymore. Are they being taught this stuff? I don't think so. Uh, no, they're definitely not. As a matter of fact, we're going to make an announcement here in the next couple of weeks that uh, we secured a gift from General Mills to donate uh, $100,000 worth of our uh, Regenerative Ag 101 online courses to uh, VOAG and FFA chapters across the nation. So your local VOAG and FFA in advisors and instructors just need to go to our Soil Health Academy website, and we should have that up and online within a couple of weeks where they'll be able to get those courses and use them in their instruction. So you're doing exactly the right thing, Joe, is you're going to heal that soil. And this isn't rocket science. It's very easily done. What you're going to need to do with an old roping arena, you're going to have very tight, compacted soils. You need to get carbon on there. So one of the ways to do that is you could go bale graze on there. Easy enough. Get the dung and urine and stimulate with the hoof action that get that carbon into the soil. Start feeding the biology underneath. You're going to see weeds growing first because the weeds are nature's healers. They're there to fight that compaction of all those years. I imagine that arena was tilled up for a number of years and and uh, it's very compacted. Those weeds, their root systems will help start healing that. And then you'll see annual grasses come and then perennials. And pretty soon uh, it'll look like uh, somebody is irrigating that <laughs> uh, old rope so arena. So obviously we want to test the soil before we get started. Um, are the Haney soil test, it, is there somewhere special that you have to find yeah. where you, people who do this? How does that work? Very good question. And what we do with all of our clients is we have them, there's specific protocol to taking these tests. Anybody can take them, but you take them at a certain depth and the soil temperature needs to be above 55 degrees Fahrenheit. And we have all of our testing done at Regen Ag Lab in Nebraska. And you can just Google Regen Ag Lab, go online. They'll have the protocol to take the tests. You just pull those samples, send it to the lab. They're not very expensive tests at all. They will analyze that soil and then send you the results. And they also send along with it a fact sheet that 
describes to you helps you to understand what that test is telling you. And so then when we know, when we see that, that kind of becomes our roadmap of of what yep. we need to do from there. That's, that's correct. That's your starting point. And I can, without even seeing your toil, I, I can pretty much guess what it's going to say. It's going to be highly bacterial dominant. You're going to be lacking in the predator in, uh, uh, microbiology, the protozoan, the nematodes, and you're going to be lacking in mycorrhizal fungi. And mycorrhizal fungi is needed because it secretes a glue called glomalin, and that's the sticky substance that starts holding sand, silt, and clay particles together to form soil aggregates. And if you don't have soil aggregates, you're not going to be able to infiltrate water. And biology lives in and on thin films of water between the pore spaces of those soil aggregates. So no soil aggregates, no home for biology, no water infiltration. That's where you start. That's what makes this so easy to do all over the world, is it's simply how ecosystems function. So, you know, when we're asking people to make this shift and, you know, we're saying, okay, well, we're just going to start with this one little section. I told my parents, as they used to say, we were growing up, hide and watch. I'm like, hide and watch. Then you'll be asking Mm -hmm. us to do this on other places on the ranch. Mm -hmm. But when we're doing this first part, what are some of those other things that we need to be doing in the background to start setting ourselves up for success, diversifying our our ranch's income the way you have. Yeah, what we always tell our clients, and I'm going to talk specifically towards large Western ranches right now, uh, in somewhat brittle environments such as yours. Okay, there are always areas on each ranch that are more hydrated than others. So you have those along if there's any streams or rivers or those that have seasonal water moving through them in the spring. That's where you start because we like to say that's your low hanging fruit. That's where you can make the biggest impact for the least amount of work and you can see results much quicker. So many people want to go to a ranch and they they bring us out there and then they take us to their poorest pastures and say, I want to heal this. Well, why stick all your time and effort in there? when by just a little more management of those more productive areas, you can double their productivity or more. Let's start there. So that's where you start, is you identify those areas. And then often the limiting case on most large Western ranches is water for the livestock. Because, you know, I don't know any history, but I'll just use as an example uh, uh, of your ranch, but I'll use as an example, client of ours. It's not uncommon to go into these large Western ranches and the pastures may be 5,000 or 10,000 acres in one pasture. Well, what happens in you turn livestock out on there, they go to those, those hydrated areas, the lower areas where the, the grass is growing more rapidly and they graze them. Well, a plant given adequate moisture and sunlight, it'll start regrowing in three days. Those cattle are going to come right back to that same plant, bite it again, and pretty soon that plant's root reserves get weakened and it dies. And you're desertifying your ranch by doing that. So we need to start breaking those large paddocks into smaller paddocks. But in order to do that, you got to get the water system in first. And We don't recommend that a ranch go spend a huge amount of money on water infrastructure right away. You need to work with what you have, but maybe perhaps you can can start dividing that 5,000 acre paddock into pasture into five 1,000 acre pastures and just start there. And you will notice a tremendous difference in just a very short amount of time. So you start doing those things. Another thing I do want to say, though, is we don't advise putting a lot of money in infrastructure. In other words, permanent fences, permanent water, until you are sure through the use of temporary fencing that that's where you want them. Because most people tie up too much water, uh, too much money, excuse me, in permanent structure. So our goal is to how to spend the least amount of money to get the largest impact 
to show positive net returns because it, then you can reinvest those positive net returns. Yeah. I mean, sounds to me like you're speaking every rancher's language. They all, mm -hmm. they all want that. Money talks. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, the thing that you say all the time is it's the profit, not the yields that matter. And when you rattled off all of the things that Brown Ranch is doing now, can you talk about what you've seen from when you've started to now where your business is and how you're doing mm -hmm. direct to consumer, what that has meant, how's that, how that's impacted <laughs> your family? Yes. And, and I want to, I want to state this fact that it was, it's our son, Paul, who really uh, drove the direct to consumer marketing. Uh, he came back uh, when he graduated college and he said, you know, dad, we have a very diverse crop rotation. We have all these different cover crops, but you only run beef cattle. Well, we should be running some sheep on this ranch also. We've got all these Forbes grown out here. Yes, cattle will eat them to some degree, but they're better suited for the sheep. So it was him who uh, got started in the, in the sheep and with the chickens and with the hogs. And he didn't do that all at once. He just started, he understood enough about business that he was selling beef to people. Well, most people who eat beef, they're going to eat eggs and they're going to eat uh, chicken. And so he said, why they not sell it more? Sure. Yeah, they want bacon for sure. That's <laughs> right. Everybody loves bacon, or at least they should. Uh, and uh, so he started down that direct marketing path. And that's a, actually a separate business entity. And the ranch raises the livestock up to uh, slaughter weight, and then the marketing business buys that livestock from the ranch. And he grew that business from uh, a $10,000 loan that his mother and I gave him. And the only stipulation we had to him is he couldn't borrow money. And now today, he, uh, we're really proud of him. He's got uh, over 8,000 customers and, and he ships meat into literally 48 states and uh, everything was paid with cash. And he he's 34 years old and has not borrowed a penny. He operates strictly on cash and he's running the ranch also. When you teach business and you practice good business sense, you realize that um, farmers and ranchers, I always say, are, are very good at producing things, bushels or pounds, but they're notoriously poor business people. You know, they buy retail, sell wholesale and pay the freight both ways. That's ridiculous. That's no way to run a business. So what Paul does, for instance, with the marketing business, obviously he knows the cost of the product because he buys that from the ranch. And then he knows his processing costs and his storage costs and his shipping to consumer costs. And he has a healthy markup. And that he's not going to lose money on the products because he sets his own price. That's the way businesses work. Yet we don't work that way in agriculture. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Now, when it comes to the processing, you know, that's a that's a lot of meat that you're processing. Do you all mm -hmm. have relationships with multiple um, processors mm -hmm. or yep. do you? Okay. Yeah, and how this started out, realized North Dakota, you know, there's not a lot of processing or anything of those type of facilities in North Dakota. And so back in uh, 2012, Paul was very active and raising money, and we built a small processing facility. It's located in a small town that wanted it there. They donated the land for it. And we built a little $2 million facility debt-free at the time and started uh, uh, processing cattle. And we're just one of the customers for that facility. Now, since then, Paul's operation has grown to the point that we're selling potloads of cattle at a time, shipping them to a larger kill plant further away. But uh, the economically, we can actually do that at a much lower price point than um just hauling five head at a time to our local kill plant, local being a hundred miles away, so to speak. We still do uh, uh, harvest kill cows and hogs and lambs there at the plant though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I know that that is something that would be a, an issue or concern where we are. 
Yeah, but people say that, but yet look how far cattle are trucked, okay? And I'm in North Dakota for crying out loud. If I can do it out of North Dakota, any of the other 50, you know, 48 states, I'll, I'll leave Hawaii and Alaska out um, for now. You can do it there also, which, by the way, I know of people both in Hawaii and Alaska that are doing it there also. So, you know, it, it so often the greatest roadblock in solving a problem is the human mind. They, they think, they, they look for excuses. Oh, I can't do it. It's going to be a problem here. No, it really isn't that big a problem. I know many, many people in Texas who are direct marketing. Well, and I mean, I love that in more ways than one. I mean, it's like you not only are becoming a better steward in your community, but you're also feeding your community. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And you bring up a very good point there. Although my son ships meat anywhere in the lower 48 states, his goal is to eventually only sell it locally, okay? However, right now, it's supply and demand. And the demand for pastured proteins, grass-finished beef, pastured pork, and, and uh, poultry is, is so high, we're able to sell it at a price point that <laughs> some may think is outrageous, but it's supply and demand. And we welcome others to do it. You know, instead, people think of a million excuses. Let me give you this as an example. You know, I don't know what you can buy factory industrialized chicken breasts for, but I'm sure it's under $2 a pound. I'm sure. And I think right now, Paul is getting $16.99 a pound for it. And last year, he sold 8,000 birds. Okay. The demand is so great that that I, I often give this analogy, you know, not everyone can own a Cadillac either, all right? So it's supply and demand. But if people would really look at what it costs them if they're eating cereal for breakfast, you can buy our bacon and eggs cheaper than you can eat that bowl of cereal, you know? So it's really not as expensive as you might think. Well, and I live in wine and weed country currently in California, <laughs> and people in Texas buying California wine and spending $60 to have that case of wine, mm-hmm. you know, shipped to them. So mm-hmm. people are going to get what they want, yep. you yep. know, we, so if we educate consumers, well, then they know that they want to pay this premium. Yeah. And, and, you know, we ship all over simply because... People are demanding it and they want to buy from us. So uh, why not sell it to them? Why not? You know, I'm a capitalist and, and I'm going to make money when and where I can, as long as it's legal. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> now tell me, do you have any resources that that you really love, like a, a favorite publication that you subscribe to or emails that you get that should be on my radar? Well, of course, I'm going to be biased to uh, our Understanding Ag website. We have a lot of resource material available there. We do free webinars, uh, sometimes several a month. And anyone can can Google our, our website, Understanding Ag, and look at resources, view all those past webinars, look at the ones coming up. Uh, I think that's a, a great place for resources. It sounds to me like people should tune into your podcast as as a very (laughs) good resource. So there's a lot of good uh, uh, podcasts in that out there. And the important thing is people need to keep educating themselves. One of the things I, I cherish most about the position I'm in now is I get exposed to a lot of people. And I, I, I tell people, Gabe Brown's really not very smart, but I know a lot of smart people and they will get me the answers I need and ask for. And I'm an avid learner. I can't learn enough. So anytime I have the opportunity to educate myself, uh, you know, when I started down this path, I always joke Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, you know, so I had to, <laughs> I had to go to the library and use the Dewey Decimal System to look up, you know, there was no such thing as soil health back then, but I had to learn about carbon and microorganisms and all these things. So we have it much easier today. 
Well, you and I are kindred spirits because I am definitely curious, constantly learning and feel like I'm more um, of a networker and connector than I am, you know, the the holder of all of the knowledge. So I was like, you know, I want to talk to this man. Who knows if he'll even get back to me. But, you know, after yeah. reading your book, you you will help anyone who's interested in this. And I love yep. that about you and I appreciate who you are. So thank you so, so much. Well, thank you. And I, I'll just say one of the other things I really cherish about regenerative agriculture is I can literally pick up the phone right now and call people in any state, any country all over the world, and they'll visit with me about what they're doing. They want to share. They've seen the success it's made in their own lives. And why don't we want to do good for all? Uh, my partners and I at Understanding Ag, we have a saying, a common ground for common good. We really believe that society can agree on 80 plus percent of the things. Let's come together and work on those 80 plus percent. We all want clean water. We all want a, an apple supply of water. We want clean air. We, we all want uh, nutrient-dense food. We want health for our children. Let's come together. Regenerative agriculture can address all those things. You know, I, I'm going to tell a little story here. Uh, I was asked to testify in front of Congress last year, the House Ag Committee, and they wanted me to testify as to agriculture's role in climate change. So I, I went there and I told them that, you know, Yes, agriculture is partially to blame for climate change because of our practices, grazing practices, farming practices. There is more carbon in the atmosphere than there should be. Now, we didn't put it all there. Industry is to blame for part of it also. But I said agriculture is the can be and should be the shining star for taking that carbon back out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil. And I said by so doing that, we're going we're gonna to clean up the water. We're going to infiltrate more water. We're going to be able to produce food that's much higher in nutrient density. We're going to be able to provide all these other ancillary benefits that are good for society. So let's come together, common ground for common good. And all I heard from that five hours of testimony was all the congressmen and women on that committee, the, the left side screamed that, agriculture's evil and we we really are to blame for climate change and the right side said no agriculture is good but we need to keep going down the path we're going and i'm like you fools we're all in this together and we all want the same end thing because they all agreed that that you know they want farmers uh doing the right thing well why not come together instead of fighting about it you know and I just see that as a problem with society today. It's so polarizing. Let's agree on the things we can agree on on humanity and move forward from there. I agree. And the poor cattle get demonized as, uh, you know, that we're replacing cattle with beyond meat. I'm like, uh, give me a break. And for a long time, I felt ashamed for being a rancher's kid for, you know, raising cattle and yeah. living in such, you know, a totally different environment here in California where you can't host a dinner party without making sure you know who's vegan and vegetarian and dairy-free and whatever <laughs> the hell else. Yeah. After doing my homework, I'm like, these poor cattle have gotten a bad rap and they're oh. actually really important for our soil health. Yeah. As Russ Conzer says, it's not the cow, it's the how. You know, and uh, one of my business partners, Dr. Alan Williams, has done extensive work showing, uh, uh, along with Peter Bick from Arizona State University, showing that properly grazed livestock are the answer to taking massive amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere, putting them back in the soil. We actually need more animals on the landscape, not less. And it can easily be done. We're showing as much as four tons of uh, carbon per year being brought back down and put into the soil by using these adaptive grazing practices. I mean, think of what that would mean. Uh, th there are instead, you know, you read that, that the government just 
wants to spend a billion dollars to see who can come up with the greatest idea to mitigate climate change. Well, I called my my state senators and I said, I got a novel idea. Let's grow plants and let cattle graze them. Let ruminants graze them. Doesn't necessarily have to be cattle, you know, and and they laugh at me. But I'm thinking to myself, you fools, you have no idea why and how this these ecosystems were created. Yeah, it's hard to uh, educate know-it-alls, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't know what you don't know. (laughs) Well, is there anything that I didn't ask you that's really important to create this regenerative ag movement? Thanks for asking that question. And I just challenge everybody out there. You know, I finished my book up by saying, make a difference. We all need to make a difference. And I often get calls and emails from people I call them my urban cousins, you know, people who live in the cities and they ask what they can do. And I said, you play the most important role because the agriculture model we have today was driven by consumer demand. The consumers demanded that type of model. Well, the consumers need to demand a different model. They need to get to know their farmer or rancher. They need to source what they eat uh, from farmers and ranchers who use these regenerative practices. And if I might, uh, here in 10 days at Expo West there in Anaheim, California, we're going to roll out a new verification program. It's called Regenified. So I'm giving you some early breaking news here. Uh, Regenified will be a verification process where we're going to go in and help supply chains of companies verify that the products that they have have been sourced from farms and ranches that are using these regenerative practices. And our goal is then to give consumers, that will equip consumers with the knowledge they need to know that their purchases are making a positive uh, difference, not only in their own health, but also in the health of the environment. That's outstanding. You know, here it's easy for me to get excellent local produce and grass-fed beef. But unfortunately, you know, in Texas where I'm from, you know, we drive 70 miles to the grocery store. And most of that produce is coming from California or Mexico or somewhere else. And, you know, there's just this vision that I have of like these small West Texas communities being able to one day have an actual farmer's market where we can be growing our own food. And again, this is something that I get laughed at when I talk about. So build it and they will come. (laughs) Absolutely, Joe. And, And that's one of the things that the current COVID pandemic has taught us just how fragile this food system is. And as I said, we would much rather just sell all of our products locally. And how great would that be? Because then we're all eating local and we can go down a whole nother, you know, we can spend another hour talking about the gut microbiome and how a healthy gut microbiome is directly related to the health of the soil microbiome. And so it is important to eat locally because that directly positively impacts your health through the gut microbiome. And just to let you know on that fact, we are working with a number of doctors, Dr. Stefan Van Vliet, Dr. Fred Provenza, who are using a mass spectrometer to measure over 2,500 different phytochemical nutrient compounds. And we're testing foods grown and raised in and on regenerative soils and comparing that to foods grown in and on uh, the conventional type soils. And what we're finding is just amazing. So look for that to come out in the near future because it's directly related to human health, soil health, plant health, animal health, human health. They're all intimately related. And once we start bridging that gap, then we can truly show the consumer the importance of knowing their farmer and the importance of regenerative agriculture. And we can truly start thinking of food as preventative medicine. Certainly, because most people, they get the kale, they get the organic kale from the grocery store. But by the time it's even at the grocery store, 
the nutrients are so depleted. And I actually started taking minerals, just putting actual minerals in my water, knowing yeah. the things that I'm not getting from my food. So how can mm -hmm. I supplement it? I will, I will give a little tease for Dr. David Montgomery, who's wrote several popular books, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. He wrote Growing a Revolution. Him and his wife, Anne, wrote A Hidden Half of Nature. His new book is called What Your Food Ate, and it'll be out shortly. And it is a whole, uh, almost a, an encyclopedia of uh, studies and facts that show the importance of purchasing and consuming food that was grown and raised in healthy soil. It's pretty amazing. Mm, so that's coming out shortly. All right. That'll be a good one. Maybe I'll get him on the podcast. I can line that up for you. All right. <laughs> well, Gabe, I appreciate you so much. Now, um, do y'all have a social presence with your consulting firm? We do, and I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but to be honest with you, Gabe does not take part. I don't even have a Facebook page. Good for you. Uh, High well, five, man. The, the reason for that is I, I answer between 200 and 400 emails and phone calls every day. And when I was on Facebook, you literally tripled that, and I just couldn't keep up. And I said I had to let something go. So that was a good one to let go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now it really is proven out that way. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. And over my dead body, will you find me in the metaverse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Welcome to my virtual smoke circle. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Gabe, I so appreciate your time and thank you for your book and for the inspiration because I will tell you that I was so excited after I read it. My sister and I are just giddy and raring to go and um, our parents don't know what to do with us. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, though? I, I can relate because my father-in-law would have liked to have disowned me when I went no-till and started down this path. And by the time he passed away, he was fully converted. He then understood, you know, but he had to see it. He was one of those. He just had to see it for himself. But I, I tell the story how in October of 2003, uh, I was combining corn here in one of my fields. And he asked my wife to go get a camera and take a picture of him and my grandson, who Paul, who now has the ranch here standing in that corn because I was combining 200 bushel dryland corn, which is unheard of in central North Dakota. I knew right then and there that I had him. I knew he was finally a believer and he passed away a month later, but I was, I was happy that I at least uh, had converted him. That's right. Before he was gone, he'd yeah. seen the light. I love That's it. Right. Well, good luck to you in all of these new endeavors that are going to help all of us. Um, it's a beautiful thing what you do. Well, and thank I appreciate you. you. I sincerely appreciate that. Keep up the good work, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you being on a podcast. I was nervous when I first asked. I was like, what is he going to think about me? So thank you. Well, happy <laughs> to do so. If you're inspired by today's chat with Gabe, I hope you'll share it with your smoke circle or rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Those small actions help other Canna Curious folks find this highly responsible cannabis content. You'll find more information about Gabe Brown and links to his book and the amazing resources he's created with his colleagues at Understanding Ag. As always, Email your requests or can of curious questions through the website or DM me on social. I'm at Casually Baked on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and the WeedTube. And if you find value in the quality cannabis content I create, you can show me some love in a couple of different ways. First, you can shop Casually Baked affiliates like Aspen Green CBD, where you receive a 20% discount using promo code CB20. From beautiful and functional glass by Session Goods, to quality seeds, to the Canna DNA test, peruse the podcast affiliate page at casuallybaked.com. Not only do you get discounts, 
but I also receive a small commission on anything you purchase. Or, if you'd rather, become a podcast patron for $5 per month at patreon.com backslash casuallybaked. Your patronage comes with access to each chapter of my audiobook, Life at a Higher Level, as it's recorded. Patrons also receive discounts on casually baked merch, coaching, and retreats at the ranch in Texas or in wine and weed country of Northern California. Podcast patrons also save 15% when they shop mjskinrelief.com. However you choose to support this highly responsible cannabis movement, thanks for doing your part to Puff Puff Pass It On. Casually Baked the Podcast was created, recorded, and produced by yours truly. Editing and sound design are in the capable hands of Jamie Humiston at PodConnects. The podcast theme music is by my highly talented friend, Seth Walker. If you aren't familiar with Seth's music, you can find High Time on his album, Gotta Get Back, wherever you're buying your music these days. I know he didn't create High Time for me, but it sure as shit sounds like he did, right? I hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.